what fundamental trend is going to affect all business, and that's climate change. And the reason for that is very simple. We are going to decarbonize our global economy over the next 30 years. That decarbonization will affect all businesses. It really doesn't matter what your industry you're in. It's going to have some impact. And that will create both challenges for business leaders over the next 30 years. It'll also create a lot of opportunities as well. So if we're training our business school students for the future, for the next three decades, it's very clear they need to be aware of climate change and the implications for business for two reasons. We want them to be successful in business, in their careers. And secondly, because it really matters. Because what they do in business, their actions, are going to impact climate change. Hello listeners, Fahad Ahmed here, and welcome to the first episode in a series that explores Columbia Business School's key pillars of learning. They are the digital future, entrepreneurship and innovation, 21st century finance, the intersection of business and society, and climate and sustainability. With these five areas as a framework, the school is committing itself to guide students to solve the increasingly complex challenges of the modern business era with cutting edge curriculum, groundbreaking research, and real-time connection to industries and practice, both within New York City and the world. In this episode, we begin our deep dive into the pillars by discussing climate and sustainability. If you're interested in an MBA, but are also thinking about how you can make an impact on climate change, Columbia Business School has built and continues to evolve its curriculum to meet this moment. To help us understand how, we recently spoke with Professor Bruce Usher. He is the faculty director of the Tamer Center for Social Enterprise at Columbia Business School. He also teaches on the intersection of finance, social, and environmental issues and is the author of the new book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. In this episode, Professor Usher and I discuss his journey to becoming a leading voice on the intersection of climate change and business, and how CBS will be a leading voice on climate education and research. Here's our conversation with Professor Bruce Usher. Professor Bruce Usher, it's good to see you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I want to start this discussion by asking you why it is that you are so passionate about the topic of climate change. Before I let you answer, I'm going to go over a few points on your bio. Before joining Columbia Business School, you led a company that developed greenhouse gas emission projects in developing countries, which was later acquired by J.P. Morgan. You are now professor and faculty director of the Tamer Center. You are a member of Columbia's Climate School faculty, and you are on the executive committee of the Earth Institute. You chair the university's advisory committee on social responsible investing. In 2019, you wrote Renewable Energy, a premiere for the 21st century. And in October of this year, you published Investing in the Era of Climate Change. So you have been very active to help deliver action on climate change for decades now. Why is this so important to you? Well, we have to go back even farther than the dates you gave when my company was sold that delivered uh, the emission reduction projects. 20 years prior to that, I graduated into financial services. That's where I always wanted to work. My real interest was in having a really successful, financially successful career. And I was very fortunate in working for a number of banks in Tokyo and New York City. I worked on Wall Street, as we called it. And at some point, having both worked for large financial institutions and then helped co-found and lead two smaller financial institutions, that second one was acquired in 2001. And at that point, I 
decided I didn't want to work for a big firm anymore. I didn't really want to work in financial service anymore. Not because I no longer enjoyed it. It was just time for a change. Hmm. And at that point, I said, what do I do with my skill set? My skill set's finance. I actually don't know anything else other than finance. And I got the opportunity to meet some people who were working in the environmental area, and particularly working on climate change. Now, this is 2001. Right. So this is 20 years ago, early days. And my assumption was, I'm a Wall Street guy, and I'm going to walk into an environmental firm and talk to them about my skill set. And they're going to throw me out of there. They're not going to have any interest in what I'm, what I'm doing. And that was a mistake. They welcomed me because even 20 years ago, it was pretty clear that if you want to address climate change or any great environmental issue, but let's say climate change, you need to understand the business community. You need to understand the investment community and understand how investment of capital can change infrastructure, can change the world as we know it. And so that conversation led to my eventually becoming CEO of this firm, EcoSecurities, that developed projects over the next eight years and was eventually uh, acquired by J.P. Morgan. So my transition was not one led by values or purpose or all the things that right. you know we, we, we really <laughs> matter today, though today I'm certainly driven by that. My, uh, my entry into this field was really driven by this is my skill set. How can I put it to use? And over time, I, I started to understand really the import of that work and the impact potentially on climate change. And at this point in time, that's really my motivator. Well, the era of climate change is here. And the impacts of climate change are all around us. Your teachings, your book, speak to the importance of preventing catastrophic climate change. I'm wondering if you can help us unpack what catastrophic climate change is. Sure. Now, let me be clear. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what the climate scientists tell me. Right. And I believe them. And that's really important. The climate scientists, of whom several hundred are here at Columbia University, we have more climate science here than any other university in the world today. They're very clear at this point. A warming of more than one and a half to two degrees Celsius. Anything uh, beyond 2050 or 2070 in terms of warning. So over the next 30 to 50 years, if we warm more than one and a half or two degrees Celsius, we risk catastrophic climate change. What that means is that the changes we will experience are beyond our normal course of activities. And those changes are likely to lead to additional outcomes that are very hard to foresee what they call a secondary effect. For example, at that level of warming, you start, to get, you start to get melting of the permafrost in the Arctic. As the permafrost melts, it releases methane into the atmosphere. That methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, which creates further warming. That further warming would lead to more melting and so on. You get this feedback loop that's potentially extremely dangerous. And that's just one example. I could, I could come up with dozens of others. We need to keep warming within that one and a half to two degree cap to prevent those feedback loops, those secondary effects. You say the challenges we face in avoiding catastrophic climate change are capital, technology, and will. I wonder if you can touch upon those three. So let me first talk about technology and capital and then get to will, which is the hard part. We've spent 300 years building a global economy that has been, by most measures, extremely successful. The average human today is 50 times as well off as the average human pre-Industrial Revolution and the agricultural revolution that went along with it gave us enough food to eat. So we're much better than we are today with a catch. That catch is we spent 300 years emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and now at a point it's our, our global economy is unsustainable. So we now have 30 years to decarbonize what we put up there for 300. That decarbonization only comes about 
with technologies that are either low or zero carbon that remove, uh, that reduce the emissions that we are putting up there today and ideally even remove what's in the atmosphere today. That's the technology part of it. And that technology has to be what economists call substitutes. Right. We can't just go out and say, here's a low carbon technology. It's not as good as what you've got. It's not as, uh, you know, it doesn't perform as well as your current products or it's much more costly than what you've got today, but you've got to use it. That's not an acceptable substitute and most people won't take it. The technology has to provide substitutes that are equal or better than what's there. Classic example, renewable energy. Renewable energy produces electricity just like fossil fuels. It's a substitute and now it's cheaper. Yeah. It's a great substitute. Electric vehicles, another substitute, actually not cheaper today, more costly, <laughs> but most people driving an electric vehicle would say it's a better product. Right. I'm willing to pay more for it. it, it goes faster, it handles better, right? So we need those technology, those specifically we need the substitutes that replace the polluting technologies with non-polluting technologies. And the good news is we have a lot of those substitutes today. Those technologies are making a lot of progress on. Secondly, we need the capital to both develop those technologies that don't currently exist, invest in innovation, and even more importantly, for those that do exist, like renewable energy, we need to scale them. We need to scale them rapidly mm -hmm. and globally. And all those technologies, we're, we're rebuilding our global economy, that takes capital investment. Those two pieces of it are pretty straightforward. The will part's the hard part. Are we willing, as a global society, and I hesitate to even say those two words, global society, because there's no, really no such thing, but are we willing, as humans, to make this change? After 300 years, are we willing to walk away from something that's worked pretty well and try something new? And that will is often lacking today. And it's lacking for two reasons. One is change is hard. Hmm. Inertia is there. But there's a, there's a more fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that the change that comes with climate change. Remember, climate change is two words, right? Yeah. Climate yeah. and change. change. Yeah. And the change part of it uh, is challenging because whenever there's – an economic change, there's winners and losers. Some companies do well. Some companies are not going to do so well. Some people whose investments and, and employment will do better than others as we go through this change. And those who are on the losing side of that, they're not going to make that change easily. They're going to fight to, to, to protect their position. That's where the problem of will really shows up. Right. A lot of it is messaging too, mm -hmm. right? The idea of save the planet hasn't been enough to will people to change. I'm just curious, what, what, what's your take on that? And I'm not asking you to be a behavioral psychologist or anything, but just why is that message not a powerful enough message? You're right, not a behavioral psychologist. So I, I want to I um, preface it by saying that. But I've never believed it's enough. I've never believed people will make this very fundamental change in how they live their lives and what they invest in, how they work, simply for the right reason. Hmm. And that is very disappointing at one level, right? We all want to think we can do that. But, but let's be realistic about this for a moment. For the vast majority of people, it's not an option. Yeah. The vast majority of people um, are in a situation where those changes – may cost more money. They may require giving up something. They may require moving or changing jobs. And that simply may not be an option. They simply may be struggling just to get by in the day-to-day. -day. If they're currently facing uh, 
insecurity if they're living in Ukraine today or they're living in a country that has civil instability, for example, they have greater concerns. Yeah. And if they're under economic stress, if they have food insecurity or any sort of stress like that, health stress, that's going to be a priority. In fact, it should be a priority. Of course. It's, it's, it's a, we're in a very privileged position to actually be able to suggest that people should be willing to make these fairly significant changes. Yeah. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that people are willing to change. They have to do it for the right reasons. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of good reasons around climate change beyond the you got to save the world. Right. And I'd say the number one good reason is most of these new products and technologies that are coming out have a lot of co-benefits that make them particularly attractive to people. Let's just talk about renewable energy, specifically solar for a moment. So one of the beautiful things about solar is that it's what we call a distributed technology. You can use it almost everywhere. It's, there's sun everywhere on the planet pretty much. And that means that individuals almost anywhere on the planet can start to control their own source of energy of power. And that's pretty radical when you think about it. Most sources of power we call centralized, either a large utility or a government or someone's controlling that, that, that very important resource. Well, now you're putting that resource in the hands of, of communities or individuals. And whether they're a very low-income community or a very wealthy community, this is beneficial to almost everyone. And it also happens to help us address climate change. So I think it's very important, no matter who we're speaking to, not to come at it from the, you need to do the right thing, though I think that's important. But we need to come at it from what is important to that individual or that community, and what is it that would allow them and hopefully encourage them to make these changes. Kind of similar how you got into it, into the field. Absolutely. Right? And yeah. again, you know, yeah. maybe I'm maybe I'm biased from my own personal experience <laughs> and that's that's highly likely. Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it works. Yeah. It worked for me and I think it works for m- most people. Yeah. Let's talk about the technology and the investing strategies. You've mentioned a few of the technologies. Uh, in your book, in section two, your book discusses the solutions to the problem, and there are five. Wind and solar, which we really just talked about, energy storage, electric vehicles, green hydrogen, and carbon removal technology. Of the five, is there any one that's more important than the other, or do they have to be seen as a package deal? So the short answer is no. Okay. Not, not, none of these is more important than the other for, for the simple reason that we need all of the above. To get to decarbonize to zero, because the climate science is telling us we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050, 2070, that means we need everything. We need all these technologies to be incorporated at scale. But an important point, and I do write about this in the book, is that investors and policymakers tend to look at these technologies in isolation. They think about how do we support renewable energy and how do we invest in renewable energy? How do we encourage electric vehicles? What do we do about carbon capture and green hydrogen and so on? In reality, each of these technologies is connected in one or more ways. So, for example, you produce green hydrogen with renewable energy. You charge electric vehicles with electricity. You could charge it with renewable electricity. Carbon capture, which is a very uh, uh, far-out technology at this point. It's not yet close to commercial or scale also requires a great deal of energy. And so these parts are connected. And as one element of, for example, those five, those five technologies I described in the book, and those are not the only technologies right. out there, but those are, those are the, I think, the most important ones today. As any one of those starts to reach scale, it helps accelerate the development of the others. So renewables, we're at scale already, and we're getting to global scale. 
Electric vehicles were right on the cusp of that today. Interesting analysis came out recently showing that when you get past 5% of new car sales being EVs, there's sort of a tipping point, and then the growth accelerates. And we're getting there in many countries there today. As that accelerates, it starts to uh, accelerate the other pieces of this puzzle, and they, they kind of fit together. In order to accelerate capital and investing is going to be really important. Uh, you discuss five. Any one in particular that you think are important? I mean, you know, divestiture, ESG investing. So I just I described five strategies. I think there are roughly five different categories, a little bit of overlap between them. Here's the key point. Every investor should select one or more strategies that works for them. There's no one right strategy, right? Some investors, the first strategy I mentioned in the book is sort of the obvious one, which is just risk management. Yeah. You know, what's at risk here? Do I own a property on the coast? Am I in the insurance business? You know, where, where, how is climate change, the physical risk, and also the transition risks that come with climate change? Where's that risk and what do I do about that? Other investors are much more driven by their values, back to this saving the right, world. Right, and, right. and again, for, for, for some investors, it's extraordinarily important. And that's more of a, I want to divest. There's certain companies, you know, if I don't believe in this particular product, I think it's a harmful product, why would I invest in it? Right. Well, that's divestment, and that makes perfect sense for values alignment. ESG, very, very uh, controversial uh, form of investing at the moment. In reality, ESG is, is pretty simple. It, it's, it's, it's a strategy to incorporate factors that were not previously considered when making investments. So previously, you'd look at financial metrics, you look at management, you look at competition. And now we're saying, you know, there's some other factors out there, like climate change, that you should include in your analysis if they're material to that particular asset. So if I'm in the real estate business and, and I'm building, you know, condos in areas that are potentially flooding, I should consider that. I should think about my cost of insurance and building and construction and, and, and the like. That's ESG and it's basic. And that's really important form of investing, it doesn't actually contribute a great deal to addressing climate change. That's that's the only yeah. challenge of the issue. And there are two other strategies I mentioned in the book. Uh, one is thematic. Mm -hmm. So this is when an investor says, look, I really believe in this particular technology or solution. For example, if you're a real fan of electric vehicles, you might want to invest specifically in investing in vehicle companies. Yeah. Right? That's a thematic strategy. And the last one, which is a very, very niche strategy, but it's an important one, is what we call impact first. Mm -hmm. This is investments where impact, in other words, addressing climate change, is your primary reason for investing. That's why you're putting the capital work. And you are hoping to get some sort of return, but it's likely to be below market. You're taking a lot of risk. You may be taking you know, a long, long time frame to get your money back. But impact first, which really can only be done by, by high net worth investors. A fiduciary cannot do that is really important because this is where some of the early stage innovation and real risk capital is being put to work. So all five strategies, they're all important and they're all valid. And I wouldn't say one, you know, one is the right one to do. Each individual investor, when I say individual, I mean either individuals or, or institutions, needs to consider and decide which of those strategies are best for them. Dean McGlarus, yourself, many other prominent business leaders are saying climate change you know, will fundamentally shift business over the next three decades. Sure. Why is that the case? Sure. Because when I graduated from business school, which was exactly three decades ago, <laughs> just to be clear, the fundamental trend that affected business for the last three decades is the evolution of technology, specifically digital technologies. And if someone had said to me 30 years ago, Digital technology is going to change everything for the next three decades in business. Just, just whisper in my ear yeah. that and said, think about that in everything you do in business for the next 30 years. That would have been really helpful. Well, that's what we are now 
looking ahead 30 years. What fundamental trend is going to affect all business? And that's climate change. And the reason for that is very simple. We are going to decarbonize our global economy over the next 30 years. That decarbonization will affect all businesses. It really doesn't matter what your industry you're in. It's going to have some impact. And that will create both challenges for business leaders over the next 30 years. It'll also create a lot of opportunities as well. So if we're training our business school students for the future, for the next three decades, it's very clear they need to be aware of climate change and the implications yeah. for business. Mm -hmm. For two reasons. We want them to be successful in business, in their careers. And secondly, because it really matters. Because what they do in business, their actions, are going to impact climate change. And that's important, too. You were saying, uh, I heard you say there are three things that an individual can do uh, to make an impact. It's reduce their own emissions, vote, and be very specific and strategic about where you choose to work. Why yeah. is that? So first of all, the, 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 two the, the two, first two individual actions are, yeah. I don't want to yeah. say, I I say important. I think they're important to align your values, what matters to you, with those two individual actions. So this is an important thing to you. Um, you, you know, if, if, if it's important to you to bike instead of driving, you should do that. Right. Um, if you want to take a boat across the Atlantic instead of flying, as Greta Thunberg do, you should do that. <laughs> um, and, and I think everyone should vote. But for our graduates in particular, where they choose to work, and even more importantly, what they do at wherever they work, is where they're going to have real impact on climate change. And the reason for that is that business is really at the center of decarbonization. That's where the technologies are. That's where the capital is. That's where we're going to get the reduction in emissions. And our graduates are going to be business leaders. They very quickly are in positions of responsibility. They influence their employers even at a fairly junior level. And as they rise in their companies, they have increased influence on those businesses. Mm -hmm. And where those businesses invest, what kind of products they roll out, how they market and position those products, everything they do. And those decisions can have a dramatic impact on the trajectory of climate change. Right, because just as the messaging of save the planet doesn't really resonate, the messaging within business and in boardrooms that if we don't take action, we won't be a sustainable business, not just sustainable in the sense of what we emit towards net zero, but actually the sustainable, actually the life of our business won't yeah. be there. And then also talent recruitment, retention, it plays exactly. a big part. Yeah, and there's a lot of a lot of academic research, including some, some of my colleagues here, showing that employees want to work for companies they believe are sustainable. Yeah. They have a preference for that. Consumers want to buy products they believe are sustainable. And investors now want to invest in companies they believe are sustainable. Sometimes their values alignment, sometimes they think it's better investment. So all these trends are pushing the same direction. As for business leaders, I'm not sure I've ever met a business leader who wanted to lead a shrinking business, a dying industry. <laughs> it's really not where anybody wants to be. And by the way, also the market doesn't reward you for being in a shrinking, dying industry. People want to be in, in growth. This is the new world. This is the growth of the future. And what do you think it indicates to our broader community, you know, current students, alumni, prospective students, faculty, that the school is making climate action, climate change, such a big priority in the school? Do you think that is something to excite our overall, our broader community? I think it should. I can't say if it does, but I think it should. And I and, and that's for two very clear reasons. One is it means the, the business school is thinking about the future about where the economy is headed and where opportunity is and where business will be in the future. And the second reason is because it is aligning our values as an institution, both at Columbia Business School and within Columbia University yeah. more broadly, 
with our students, with our faculty, with our alumni, and with the business community, that we are on board with addressing this issue. And that's very important as well. Yeah. Well, we start at the top and told you know the audience all the different ways in which you were active, not only just in the business school, but within you know Columbia University as a whole. Question is, what do you think makes what we're doing and our future plans unique and attractive? Can you give us a little insights into how we are evolving and how we are looking to continue to push ourselves to be better in this space? So like I said a few minutes ago, climate change will only be addressed with an all-the-above strategy. We need all the technologies. We need capital aligned. And here as a business school, we need to be doing everything that we can in this area. So that starts with the curriculum. So we had, we've had in the last couple of years two courses specific to climate change. In the coming year, we'll have five courses oh, by, by the spring. So that's a fairly significant increase. And there's two or three more in development. And those are courses specifically on climate change in business. We also have courses on ESG and other areas that are sort of related to that. The second part of it is research. And so we've started funding research projects internally. We now have about a dozen senior faculty doing research projects around climate change. And we are hiring more junior faculty to deepen our expertise in that area. And the third area is in outreach, thought leadership, conferences, seminars. We have an annual conference around climate change. We're now expanding that and adding a number of seminars and other, other thought leadership events. Bringing in alumni who are connected to this school and are now increasingly involved in climate change. So one of the things we've learned is that a significant number of our alumni are already engaged in the topic through their work. They're working in the sector, and we want to get them connected back to the school bring their expertise back to this school because they're showing real leadership in this area. Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah, how do you see the school showing up as a leading institution uh, publicly around this topic? Is there a way for us to bring our thought leadership out into, you know, the broader business community and allow people to enjoy and maybe be inspired yeah. by what, think, we're, what we're finding? I think we have a responsibility to do so. Hmm. Uh, Dean McGlaris will be going to COP27, as will I. Uh, we will be uh, at several events there. And the focus of our role at the COP is really around education. It's, it's our role in educating the future business leaders around that. And we are reaching out to other business schools to, to work together on that. Because it's one of those topics where, of course, we compete for students and resources. That's, that's, what, that's what the business schools do. But we also have a shared mission here. And that shared mission is how do we how do we train the next generation of business leaders? What resources do we have in institutions that we can share? And a lot of that's around the thought leadership, around the research, around curriculum and teaching resources. And there's a lot of discussion here at, at Columbia Business School about how we can show leadership on that. And then, of course, the other point I want to make is Columbia Business School is part of Columbia University. We're 17 schools here at the university. And Columbia University has more expertise on climate change than any university in the world today. If you actually sort of add up all the climate scientists and, and, and at the law school and the policy school and all the – and that, now the new climate school, there's a – enormous amount of expertise here. And we also are working with our colleagues across the university to think, how do we, how do we leverage the resources across the different schools? Now, this is, a, this is a big challenge, not an easy thing to do at a large institution like Columbia, but that's also part of our remit. Final question, Professor Usher. Uh, a lot of times in the marketing creative space where I work, we always start projects with a brief, which is, what do you, and essentially three main questions. What do you want your audience to think, to feel, and to do after they consume you know, whatever it is that you're working on. So after people read your book, which is fantastic, after people listen to this episode, which I hope they think was fantastic, 
what do you want them to think, to feel, and to do? So I think there's two things I'd really be pleased if they took away from this. One is that the public narrative around climate change isn't correct in my view. The public narrative, either it is small narrative, but there's this narrative that is it's not serious, it's not a problem. You know, this sort of denialist narr- narrative, and, and let's forget about that. That's that's not incorrect, and and I hope listeners don't have that narrative. But there's another very large narrative out there that the problem is so serious that it's too late. We can't do anything about it. We are all going to perish. And this is the defeatist category. And in many ways, to me, that's equally harmful. Because at the end of the day, this is a very serious problem. And if we do not tackle it, we are in a very bad way. We have the ability to avoid catastrophic climate change. We can doesn't mean we will. And so the first takeaway would be keep the eye on this is a huge challenge, but an addressable challenge if we focus on it. And the second takeaway would be go do it. Right. It is that next generation that's going to be out there running these businesses, investing that capital, implementing these technologies, scaling these solutions, and really addressing these changes. I believe they can. I want them to go do it. Well, Professor Usher, congratulations on the uh, publishing of your book. It was fantastic. I hope everyone has a chance to get it, to read it, to learn from it. Thank you for all the work that you are doing on behalf of Columbia Business School, but also your representation with Columbia University as well. Look forward to hearing more from you and seeing all the impact this school is making with you and Dean McGlaris' leadership. So thank you again. Thank you very much. That's our conversation with Professor Bruce Usher. Quick closing words for me. In his book, Investing in the Era of Climate Change, Professor Usher writes, climate change will affect investors in a process of creative destruction that will last for at least the next three decades. Investments will be affected by climate change and investors will affect climate change. The key question, perhaps the only question that really matters, is whether investors will have enough of an impact. Look, it's no secret the situation is dire. As Professor Usher indicated, it is possible to avoid catastrophic climate change. It just requires us as humans to act. And whether that's through your investment strategy, being active in your organization's climate change initiatives, or starting your own company, CBS has the curriculum, research, and thought leadership to help you. To learn more, visit the Tamer Center at business.columbia.edu forward slash social enterprise. And stay connected to all that's happening on this show and at CBS by following us on social media. You can find us at Columbia underscore biz. Be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss our upcoming episodes. If you can, leave us a comment and a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks for listening.